Great. Thanks. Thank you so much, Missy. Thanks for opening us up in prayer. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to see so many faces here in Recovery Jam. Um, my name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And um, so tonight, um, I wanted to share my story with all of you. I know we've been doing lots of talks and, um, you know, give, sharing snippets, I think snippets of what my actual whole story is. And I've shared it in other places. Um, but, um, you know, the reason, the reason I want to share my story is um, that I have absolutely experienced a miracle of healing. And when you've experienced a miracle um, of this nature, you just want to shout it out and tell other people um, it's possible. This is possible. My story, you know, it's, I think it's a powerful story, but it's not unique. And there are loads of people in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and other 12-step fellowship programs who have experienced a miracle. And um, and so my, my hope is to share, just like we're told, how it is that I came to find a relationship with God, how it is that I came to know God, for God to, you know, reside in my heart and change me in a way that um, is profound. And really what happens is um, it drove out this relationship that I have established with my creator has completely removed the desire the magnetic pull that the food has had on me. And so for anybody who's new and who's wondering, is this possible? You know, I'm here to say it is. It's not only possible, it's, we're actually told we're guaranteed. We're guaranteed, right, that this can happen. So that's what I really want to share with you. Um, I, when I share my story, I usually like to share my pictures because what happens when I share my pictures with people who've never seen them before, um, they, they lean in a little closer. <laughs> they listen just a little bit more because I'm, I'm quite um, lucky in the sense that my miracle is visually noticeable. You know, other people have had profound huge emotional rearrangements, big changes, but their bodies don't necessarily shout it, you know? And so I think, I think if you're of the type that I am, who is morbidly obese, I believe I have a responsibility to share the physical transformation um, because it hopefully gets attention, not for me, but for the power, right? For the power, capital P, which could do this, right? The only thing that could do this. So I'm gonna share my photos and then I'm gonna kind of run through um, what this is, right? So um, this was me um, when I gave birth to my daughter was not the beginning of my story of being a compulsive overeater and being overweight. But what's what's important about that picture, why I like to share it, is I was really, really, really happy there. And I thought that happiness 
was a cure for this um, because I was happily married, new baby, and I thought I'm certainly going to be able to lose the weight, right? This weight that I had been carting around, um, and I thought I would certainly stop eating compulsively because I had a new baby. I I had magical thinking. I thought baby was going to magically cure me. Um, but here I am in the next picture, she got older and I got larger, so it didn't work. Right. And my husband and I have been happily married. It's going to be 25 years and having a good marriage didn't save me either. Happy baby, happy marriage wasn't a solution. You know, what we did throughout the years was we ate out a lot because I was owned by food. And when food is your master, food tells you what you like to do. So I thought, I like going out to dinner. I thought that's what we enjoyed. And food was my recreation. It's what I did for pleasure. But it crowded out all other aspects of my personality so that I didn't even know what I liked anymore, you know? Um, and here was me through the years. You know, in the red shirt, I was having a party at my house that day. And I really didn't look like I was having a party. I could barely brush my hair. Um, my house was a mess. I'd like to think that my house is much neater today, sometimes, but I was a mess there. I was a complete mess. Um, in the picture next to it, in the sunglasses, I was on a vacation, and um, and I was really happy there. I was abstinent, and I picked something up on that vacation, and the later part of the vacation, I wasn't smiling quite like this. Um, this was me with my sisters and my sister-in-laws. And I often would be at family events with a drink in my hand and food in my pocket. <laughs> you know, I had to drink a lot. I felt like at these events, surrounded with family that loved me, I have a big, loud, overbearing, opinionated, loving family. Um, and the way that I describe them is me. You know, we're all kind of like that. We have opinions, we have perspectives. And I showed up at all these events with like a barrier between me and the people who loved me. I felt like there was a wall between me and them. Um, and this picture of me in the leopard sweater, I was actually at, at my worst period. I, um, I could barely hold my son and I wanted him. He was a child that we wanted more than anything. He came after losing another child. Um, and so he was loved, wanted, and I couldn't even enjoy him because food was my master. And it did not allow me to enjoy my own baby child, my own infant child, because I couldn't hold him comfortably. The size of my body interfered with my ability to hold him. And he was so incredibly active and my body couldn't keep up with him either. Um, and these are more recent pictures. Of course, now he's even older, but this is, you know, this is what happened to me. This is, this is as a result of working the steps, the picture in the gray, I show it because I was actually recovered at that point. My body just hadn't caught up yet because it's a process when you're morbidly obese, the weight doesn't come off overnight. And part of my addiction was actually to quick fixes and schemes. And so part of my solution is there are no quick fixes with weight loss. There are no schemes. There's healthy, sane eating, abstinence, and the body restructures itself, you know, in its rightful time. But what's significant about that particular day 
is I felt completely connected to all the people who were at this occasion where I was. The barrier, the wall between me and them, it was gone. It was totally removed. Um, and this is me. You know, this is what I look like pretty much now. Different hair color. <laughs> but every one of those dresses fits me, and I know it. I just go in the closet and pull it out. So, all right. So what's the purpose of sharing those photos? Um, because, it's, like I said, it's a visual demonstration of what it looks like to have an experience with the miraculous. So what I want to tell you is that um, I'm, I'm certain that I was born a compulsive overeater, um, or at least with this desire. And I always was looking for why. Why is it that I am a compulsive overeater? And basically what I was really hoping was that I was going to find somebody to assign blame to. I was really hoping that it was going to be my parents' fault as to why, um, why it is that I became like this. And, um, you know, and it's an immature question. And in the chapter, there's a solution. It says that opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. So if you're coming to Overeaters Anonymous or to a 12-step meeting hoping to figure out why you're like this, that's not what this is about. That's not the solution. Me identifying the cause of this other than to say, I have a spiritual malady. That's the cause. And who gave me that spiritual malady? Where did I catch it? I heard someone say once, I caught this from an open refrigerator, right? I caught it from an open cookie box. You know, I don't know where I caught it. Um, and, you know, basically, if you're searching for the why, what I've come to find out is that's an immature question. Because when you want to know why, what you really are saying is, I don't like this. You know, and it's sort of like the way that my kids would ask me why when I would tell them that they had to go to bed or that they weren't allowed to do something. They, and they would say, why? Now, they don't really want to know why. What they were hoping was to get me to change my mind. And so for me, I kind of had that same thinking. I thought if I could identify why, then I don't know, maybe I could go back in a time machine and magically undo this. So there is, I don't know why. And it's really, it's unimportant. It's just not important. You know, my early memories um, were, a lot of them were food related, you know, and I one time mentioned that to my husband. I said, you know, that's what makes me different from you, babe. You know, my early memories are all food related. And he said, I don't know that that's what makes you different because I have a lot of food memories as a kid too. He, and, and he started sharing some of his food memories. All of his though were happy. All of his food memories were feelings of love and comfort and, and his grandmother baked this and his mom baked this. But most of my food related memories were of a longing where I just never got enough. 
And that's not true. That was just my experience because I was not starved. My parents did not, you know, withhold food from me, but it felt like that to me because I never, ever felt like I got enough. You know, um, I grew up with a lot of frothy emotional appeal because my parents loved me and the people in my family and those in my life loved me. And what we find out is frothy emotional appeal never suffices. So that wasn't the solution either, right? I went to therapy to try to figure out why I have this and that didn't work. I had people who appealed to me from an emotional perspective, tried to sit me down and give me some good talks and that didn't work either. I even had my own frothy emotional appeal where I would cry in front of the mirror and say, what is wrong with you? Do something about this. Get yourself together. And that didn't work either, right? None of those things worked. You know, I um, I want to tell you that I, I went on my first diet when I was about nine years old and 10 years old. And... Um, and it was really effective. And it was my first experience with diets. And diets are actually, they work if your problem is just um, you're overweight, right? And that's what I thought my problem was. So if you minimize your calories, you limit your caloric intake, and you move more, you lose weight. But I have a spiritual malady, and I have, I have a mental twist. So every time I lost the weight, I would return again to the food. And so I was at a normal weight for about the time I was 14 or 15. And at that time, I decided that I wanted to get skinny. I don't know, maybe I was like short, just a little bit overweight, not much. And I went on a very, very strict diet. I basically starved myself and I lost a lot of weight and I lost it really quick and I got really skinny and it felt amazing. And then something happened to me. You know, what happened was I crossed this weird line. I remember the day I came home from high school and there was something in the freezer and I ate it. And then I ate the rest of the box. And something happened to me that day. I don't really know what, but I crossed a line and I gained a hundred pounds in high school. I mean, that's what happened to me. I went from thin to obese in a very short amount of time. You know, in the chapter more about alcoholism, it says our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And that was my great obsession. You know, I first came to Overeaters Anonymous, it was almost by accident. I was um, in my early 20s, and I found out some important information. I found out about a, an allergy of the body. Um, and But I, I was given a food plan at that meeting, and I was also given a book, big book. And I took the big book and I shoved it in a drawer but I studied the food plan. The food plan was, I would say, what happened for me was um, abstinence became my God and my food plan was the religion I practiced to get close to this God, to get a relationship with this God. And while abstinence is important, 
and having a food plan is a great way to ensure that you're abstinent. That's not God. It wasn't enough. It's not a sufficient power. And so what happened for me, I lost the weight just like that because I was young and I was properly motivated. And here's what happened. I fell victim, which practically every alcoholic does, that is long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men. You know, and, and like him, I gathered all my forces and attempted to stop altogether and found I could not. You know, there's the story of Fred and everything for him was going great. And it says on page 41, physically, I felt fine. No pressing problems or worries. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. And what happened for me was I had been abstinent. I had lost a lot of weight. I got thin. I got all the things that I wanted. I had a, I had motivation at that point in my life. Um, and I met my husband, which is what I wanted. I wanted to lose weight so I could meet a man, get married, and get a good job. And that's what I got, right? I got all those things, check, check, check. But you saw the picture of me with my daughter as a baby with my husband. So having a good marriage and getting those things, it didn't work. Um, and I went on my honeymoon. And like normal people, I looked around and thought I was normal. And I looked around and I saw the rest of normal looking brides. And I thought I was one of them. Um, and I picked up a frozen tropical drink. And just like what happened to me at 14, I gained weight just like that. Um, you know, and, um, and how did I had this tremendous experience with powerlessness because, well, while I was on the honeymoon, I didn't want to stop eating. It was fun. We were having a good time. So I didn't know that I was powerless at that point, but I came home. And on that Monday, I thought for sure I could get myself right back on this religion of food plan that I had practiced so I could get back to my God of abstinence. And they were nowhere to be found because I had no power. I had no relationship with God. I had a relationship with diets, which is basically what it was. And it didn't work. You know, no thought of God there. Only reliance was on myself and on my intelligence. That's what I kept trying to appeal to, my own intelligence. You know, this went on for many years, up and down and up and down. And what I want to say is that I never once considered that God would care about me in this food problem. I just seemed like I missed that. I, you know, um, I didn't think that God was concerned with me and food. I thought God was really busy solving or in my small narrow mind not solving the bigger problems of the world because i looked around and i thought he's not doing a very good job so why why would he even care about me and my food he certainly doesn't care and and i want to say you know i want to impress upon anybody that i do i don't feel that way at all anymore today god has entered my heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous he has accomplished the thing inside me that I could never do for myself. And I don't believe that God ever intended for me to live that way, ever. I don't think God wants anybody to live that way. You know, um, I came to OA again, right? And that was 12 years ago. And I 
followed partial directions. And I got partially okay for a bit. You know, um, I had some bursts of recovery, um, but I didn't know that I could recover. I sat at meetings where people loved me. They were kind. I'm so grateful for that because if they weren't, I wouldn't have kept coming back. I know that. So I don't ever want to say anything disparaging against the people that warmly welcomed me there. And I don't know that they knew that I could recover. I didn't know. I don't know that they knew that they could even say that word, you know, but there were people there who had long-term, solid, strong recovery. And I would say, I believe that some of them were recovered and have been recovered. Um, you know, I didn't know that it was possible for me. And what happened was I wound up regaining my weight again, right? Um, and then the best thing in the world happened. I started having horrendous panic attacks. And why do I say that was wonderful? Because the food stopped working. You know, and so what happened? Here's the best part. Now I want to talk about what happened. Page 25, there's a solution. The great fact is just this and nothing less that we have experienced deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of my life today is the absolute certainty that my creator has entered my heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things which I could never do by myself. You know, it goes on to say that in that chapter that we pass into the region for which there's no return through human aid. And at that point, we have only two options, two choices. One, go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other is to accept spiritual help. I'm so glad I reached that point where the only choice I had was to basically eat myself into a food coma or reach out for help from God. You know, what happened for me, I didn't believe in God so much at that point. I didn't think I did, but I remember the day that I cried out to God. I didn't even believe in God. And I cried out. I said, God, help me. I'm screwed. You know, that's what I said. And not long after that, I began to really take this program of action seriously. And what happened for me was God put me exactly in the path of somebody who I knew loved God, spoke about God, worked a program that was serious, you know. Um, she was someone that I had always avoided before in the rooms, right? Remember I said there were lots of people there who, who looked really recovered, who definitely sounded strong, and I avoided those people. Well, not that day. I think God knew exactly what God was doing. He put me right in a store where she was. And the only way that I could describe what happened was, see, normally, if I gained weight, I would avoid people, right, 
who who knew that I had gained weight. I would have ducked down the other aisle. But what God did for me that day was God walked my body over to that woman. That's It was like something just walked me right there. And my mouth opened and I said, I need help. Help me. There I was in the middle of Lowe's departments, you know, Lowe's home improvement store. No plan of asking for help that day. And it came out of my mouth asking for help. So what did I do? Right? Step one. I took step one. By the way, step one is more than just admitting I have a problem with food or specific types of food. Step one means that I embrace a very specific concept that we find in the doctor's opinion. And it comes at the end of the explanation about the allergy, which I had always missed before because I was so focused on the allergy, this idea of the allergy. But right at the end of that explanation, it says, this phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. Step one means that I absolutely accept, not only accept, but I embrace the fact that I am different, that I am distinct, distinct, that I am separate. And what I would say is, you know, you take a piece of paper and you fold it in half. And if you put that, you know, you kind of crease that paper real good, you can't uncrease that paper when you when you open it back up. That line in there is forever. It's a permanent line. Cannot be eradicated. Cannot be erased. I'm distinct. I live on one side of the page where I have a very specific set of rules and the way that I must live. And I no longer fight that. I actually 100% accept it because I've got no, in the beginning, it was because I had no other choice because it was either food coma or accept where it is that I live with a set of responsibilities in order to live in, in any semblance of freedom and happiness. Step two, okay, here's something, right? It says, form your own conception. So remember I said, I wasn't even sure that I believed in God, but I cried out for help from God. So I want to tell you that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It must have been there because I cried out for help from God. I didn't cry out, help me diet, help me, help me food plan, help me. That's not what came out of my mouth. It was help me God, right? So, you know, and yet, yet, even in my recovery work, I wasn't interested in God. I, I had a little smug, superior attitude. I thought myself too smart for God. Can you imagine? I was over 300 pounds, breaking toilet seats. I mean, that's my story, right? I ate till my mouth bled. My last binge, my mouth bled. Somehow, I thought I was too smart for God. Like, I had such arrogance about me. You know, but I do remember thinking, I learned in step one that my mind was broken. And I remembered thinking in step two, how could my broken mind come up with my own concept? Like, I was like, what do you, really? You're telling me my mind is broken and now you just want me to make up God? You know, 
And what happened for me was I heard my father's voice. God is so creative. I think God knows exactly how to reach me, how to reach all of us. What's going to work for me? And what worked for me was a familiar, loving voice with good direction. And it was the voice of my father who was no longer alive. My dad's passed, but I had a really loving, wonderful dad. And the voice I heard in my head was, don't be so smart. You want to get better or not? And I knew it wasn't my father talking. You know, I wasn't delusional. But I was like, wow, that's kind of strange. I'm hearing like my father, something my dad would say. You know, and I've been thinking a lot these days about that statement, you know, that I had that I had said, like, why don't you form your own conception? And can I use my broken thinking to make up a God? You know, I don't know that I was so wrong there because it doesn't say you can make up God. It says you can form your own conception. So what is a conception? You know, conception, a dear friend of mine reminded me recently, a conception is a general notion. It's an abstract idea. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. So here's the most beautiful thing on page 12 in Bill's story. It says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And it says here, that statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. And I experienced that. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I want to emphasize beginning. Remember, forming your conception means growth can start from that point. So we're told we can start from that point. But I must say that I had to be willing to grow along the spiritual line, that the God that I could conceive of at that point, I was still sick, certainly wasn't going to be enough for the long haul, but it was enough to open the door. It was enough to give me just enough access. And God is so wonderful and beautiful and powerful. He met me where I was at. I had to be willing though to continue on, right? So step three, here's how I continued on. Well, I suffer from know-it-all syndrome. That's what I found out in step three, that I, I, have a, I have a know-it-all attitude. And I'd like to think that I've been recovered of that, but it's not really true. <laughs> but at least today, I know it. At least the difference is today, I know mm, I'm suffering from know-it-all syndrome that I don't really know it all, you know? And, um, and I have this desire to always be in charge. I like to be the boss, you know? I would look at all the people in my life and the things that they were doing wrong. And I was just so certain that if they just did what I knew was best, everything in the entire world would be better. Right. And in step three, I decide I'm going to fire myself and I'm going to allow myself to be governed by God. 
by my real employer. And basically what I say in step three is we join team God. We say, all right, I want my thoughts to be your thoughts. I want my words to be your words. I want my desires to be your desires. And, and I know I'm not strong enough. So I want you to give me some strength so that I can follow your desires, so that I can say your words, so that I can take your actions, right? In steps four and five, I found out there were lots of things blocking me from really knowing what God's will was for me, from really understanding it, you know? And what I did was I put it all down, put it all down on paper. And I found while I was doing it that I whined at different points that, you know, a big one for me was fear. I had a lot of experiences, like many of us do, that um, kept me in fear. You know, I had a lot of painful losses, um, and I felt like I was entitled to be afraid. And I even remembered saying, I'm entitled to be afraid. You know, and I heard this other great voice again. You know, I get to hear these little voices. And what I heard was, you're entitled to more than that, right? So if you're living in fear, we're actually entitled to better than fear. We're entitled to be better, to have a better life than that. You know, um, I sat down with my sponsor. It wasn't in one session. I began getting rigorously honest. Um, and, but there was still a piece of my story that I held on to. And I realized that I wasn't going to have complete freedom if I held on to some of the things I felt tremendous guilt over. So we made an appointment, my sponsor and I, and we sat together in a church. Um, and I told her everything. I just opened up and just told her the whole ugly truth right? And I had a spiritual experience that day. She looked at me and she said, Melissa, I, God has already forgiven you. And, and I felt it. I felt God's forgiveness. You know, it's interesting because I've heard other people say it. And it's so interesting that so many of us had this experience. But I walked outside of that church that day and I looked up at the sky and the trees looked different. They looked, I remembered looking at the sky and the outline of the trees against the sky. They looked crisp. It looked, it looked sharp. It looked like I had on a new pair of glasses. And that day I knew I was never gonna have to eat the way that I ate before. It was, I did have that experience of relief from the food. It just felt, I felt lighter. I felt, I felt freedom. Um, you know, I felt the nearness of my creator and, um, and I wanted to do more. I wanted to go on and finish the work. The desire to keep going was so strong in me. Step six and seven. Well, I want to say that's the work of my lifetime because I can't rid myself of my defects. And I want them to be gone. I do. I want my defects to be removed, but I can't do it on my own because I'm a human, 
right? And remember, in step three, I have know-it-all syndrome. So sometimes those defects feel like they're right, right? That's the right way because I know it. I know it. I know it, right? So it's the work of my lifetime. And what do I do? I cooperate. I cooperate, you know? And what I found out is just like I have this know-it-all syndrome and I like to have, I like to get my way, I found out that my freedom actually increases not just when I don't get my way, but when I actually stop having a way. When I release my grip on needing it to be my way and recognize, you know what? I want it God's way. I don't want it my way anymore. I want God's way because God's way seems to work better, right? Um, steps eight and nine, I made those amends. The ones that frightened me because I knew there were only two choices. I was afraid. Trust me, I was afraid to make those amends. But I trusted God. I began to feel like I wasn't going to be alone in those places, those situations where I had to tell the truth. And I want to say that, you know, although I felt God's power rush in in step five, in steps eight and nine, really in step nine, I felt like I met God when I made those amends. I just began to have that real relationship. And I think of it like this. If you want a relationship with someone, anyone, relationships strengthen when you rely on those people. When life is giving you difficult circumstances and the people are there for you through those difficulties, that's where the relationship gets, you get bonded to them. And that's how it sort of felt like for me and God. You know, I leaned into God and God's power was there. I didn't feel abandoned. I felt strong. I felt, you know, his strength flow through me. Um, so I made those hard amends. I made hard amends to coworkers. I made a hard amends to an aunt. I made amends to my own family, my children, my husband. And those amends continue. I live those amends. I practice those amends. Um, steps 10, 11, and 12, it's not just a catchphrase. You know, a lot of times you ask people like, what steps are you in? Oh, I live in 10, 11, and 12. Yes. But it's not just a catchphrase, it's actually the truth. Step 10 is I do take, I take inventory. I look at myself, you know, self-examination. Um, I, I don't live in my resentments, my fears, my harms. I'm, I'm open to improvement. I'm open for God to improve me, right? 11, I pray. I pray and I meditate and I've actually found I love that quiet time. I wouldn't give it up. I love my quiet mornings with God. I love to meditate. I think it's, um, it's the best part of my day where I really get to feel that intuitive, you know, spirit. I get some inspiration, not always, but, um, but more and more as I seek it. Um, and step 12, this is it. Step 12. I, I love carrying the message. I feel, um, this is a joy. 
when we say, you know, that this is the bright spot, no joke, no joke. Like I love doing this. I think, you know, I would say, you know, as a know-it-all, as someone who was always a know-it-all, I always liked to talk. I always needed to be told, shh, shh, like be quiet. And here I feel like God said, you know what? You like to talk? Good. I'm going to give you something to talk about. Here's what I want you to talk about. I don't want you to talk about your boss anymore. I don't want you to talk about what your sister did. Here, this is your topic. Run with it. Do this topic. Do this talk. You know, um, so I think it's just an incredible thing when we get um, when we get an opportunity to live in agreement with our purpose. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful to have a story to be able to share with you guys. I hope that um, it inspires, you know, that, that this works, this program works. If it works for me, it absolutely can work for anybody. And I do believe that. And thanks. With that, I'll pass.